You may be seated, and as you do, grab your Bibles and turn with me to two passages this morning, Ephesians chapter 5 and Matthew 16. You'll uh, get to Ephesians 5, we'll be there first, stick your finger in Matthew 16, we'll get there in just a little bit. And uh, as you're turning, I'd like to take a moment just to thank the church uh, for the 10th anniversary celebration that was given to me a few weeks ago. If you weren't here for that, uh, I just passed uh, in June 10 years uh, of ministry here at Bethel, and uh, it was a great night. Mostly uh, it was a great night because everybody got to make fun of me uh, and poke at me a little bit. And we also were able to celebrate God's goodness uh, to uh, me in particular and to my family over the last 10 years. And as part of the celebration, we were given a gift uh, of a trip to New York City. And uh, the trip had two big parts to it. One was for me and one was for Eva. The part for me was uh, tickets to uh, Yankee Stadium to see uh, the New York Yankees play, which is my uh, team that uh, I have followed since childhood and actually got to go to the old stadium when I was young. And so I got to go to a game there and they won. It was a lot of fun. And I realized that there are some Sox and Cubs fans here this morning who are saying, how in the world can you be a Yankees fan? How can you be a Yankees fan? And really, my only response to that is, is that I want to cheer for a team that is going to win more than one World Series in my lifetime, okay? And, um, yeah. Or if you're a Cubs fan in the next century, okay? Uh, But um, anyways, we had a great time. And then uh, for Eva, there were tickets to Phantom of the Opera. There were actually two, which means I had to go uh, to it as well. And... um, Anyways, actually most people have asked me about that and how that went. And uh, one lady said, you know, uh, that is like a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to Fan of the Opera in New York City. To which I replied, I can only hope so. I can only hope so. In fact, uh, we get started and they're, they're doing all their stuff. And I leaned over to Eva and I said, are they going to sing through this whole thing? And uh, for those of you who don't know, it's an opera, so... They sing the whole time. They sing the whole time. And uh, I don't think she appreciated that too much. But we had a great time. And uh, we are very thankful uh, to be able to be a part of the ministry here. God has used this church literally to change our lives. My children have grown up here. And uh, we are just very thankful to be able to minister with you and hope that the Lord will give us another decade or two to be able to be here and to serve with you. Uh, Now we uh, get to the task at hand. And my assignment for this weekend is to address the issue of church. Church membership. And while the most direct way to do this would be simply to go through the New Testament and to point out to you what the New Testament has to say about being part of a local church, I'm going to go in a completely different direction this morning. And rather, I want to talk to you about the church itself. Instead of focusing on membership, I want to focus on the church aspect. And I want to help us to develop the correct theology and a correct understanding of where the church fits in God's plan for our lives and for what he is doing in the world, preparing. Uh, for what he has in the end. You know, I really believe that the, the reason that most people don't think that church membership is that important is because they really don't think the church is that important. And the reality is, is nothing could be further than the truth. And I hope this morning that the Holy Spirit is going to come in here and through his word, he is going to instill within all of us a love and a passion for the church so great that when you walk out of those doors here in a little bit, you will not leave thinking, you know, I really need to be a part of the church. Rather, you will leave saying, I really want and desire to be a part of the church. That's what God wants. He wants you to want it, not to think that you have to do it. And that's what I hope to accomplish here this morning through this message. And so here's the title for the message this morning. It is, Why I Love the Church 
and in parentheses, you should too. Why I love the church, and you should too. Now let me begin by clarifying what I mean here by church. What church am I talking about? Well, the term church in the New Testament comes from the Greek word ecclesia. You maybe have heard of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And essentially, this word ecclesia means called out ones. It's normally translated gathering or assembly. And it has a unique redemptive meaning in the scriptures when it's used in two ways. First of all, in general, it refers to all Christians of all times from all locations. All of the people from all time that God has called out, that God has chosen. Chosen and have brought into his body, into his family, into the church. This is known as the invisible, or maybe you've heard it called the universal church. The reason it's called invisible is because none of us know how many people and actually who is in that church. God is the only one. Now we can put some numbers out there and we can say maybe a couple hundred million or two billion or whatever, but we really don't know. Only God knows. That's the invisible church. The second way in which it is used is for a local assembly assembly or gathering of what is called the visible church. These are local churches that we can see that I can put our finger and say that's a local church. Bethel is a local church. So you got that? There is an invisible church and there is a visible church. There is a universal church, okay, all the believers, and there is a local church of which Bethel is just one of many, literally millions that have existed since Jesus founded the church all the way back um, in Acts. Now, two things that you need to know about what the New Testament teaches about the visible and the invisible church. Number one, all true believers are part of the invisible church. Okay? When Jesus calls you, when God calls you, when he lays it on your heart, when you receive Christ as your savior, you are chosen and you are placed into God's invisible church. Okay? Just by default. The second thing, however, is that we also then are called to be a part, to be a member of a local, visible, established church. The New Testament is clear about this. It's clear about this. In fact, you would have a very hard time if you were to go home today and look through the New Testament and find a believer who was not part of an established local church. You just won't be able to find that kind of thing. So, When I say that I love the church, I mean that I love the church as a whole, the entire body of Christ, and specifically, I love its local expression here at Bethel. And and I hope that the result of this message is that you will love the church, both invisible and visible as well. And I've got just two points for us this morning, two main points. I like to keep things simple. The first one is this, is I love the church because Jesus loves the church. I love the church because Jesus loves the church. And I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter five, and we're going to pick up at verse 25. And I know that the three of you in here who remember my last message um, are saying, you know, this is the same passage that you preached out of the last time that you preached. And to that, I have to say, well, listen, uh, I was given a task to speak the last time about marriage. And if you're going to preach about marriage, you've got to preach Ephesians chapter 5. And now I've been given the task to talk about the church. If you're going to preach about the church, you have to talk about Ephesians 5. So get off my back. That's what it is, okay? All right, here, here we go. All right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing 
thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this passage, of course, is the key passage in the entire scriptures regarding marriage. A lot of good things that we can get out of this, but you'll note. Look at verse 32 again. Paul says, this mystery is profound, but guess what? I'm really saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so while we want to get everything we can from this passage out of marriage, we can't miss the fact that what Paul really wants to get across to us is he really wants to get across to us the relationship that Jesus Christ has with us, his church. Now, look again at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul tells husbands here that they are to love their wives in the same manner in which Christ has loved uh, the church. And how has Christ loved the church? Well, Paul says he gave himself up for her. Now, if we didn't really know what he was talking about, maybe this is the first time we read it, we wouldn't be totally sure what he means by Christ giving himself for the church. So, let's look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church here in Ephesus. And he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves... And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So how did Christ show his love for the church? He did this. One day the father looked at the son and said, son, it's time. And the son said, okay, father, I will obey. And he took on human flesh. He left his authority and his position in heaven and his comfort in heaven. And he came down and he lived the life, the difficult life of a first century Jewish carpenter. He was tortured and then he was nailed to a cross, the cruelest form of execution that has ever been invented. And he did it all for who? He did it all for the church with his blood. Now... Here's a key point that I need to make, uh, and you need to get this if you're going to understand and really grab on to what I'm talking about here this morning. Normally, when we read passages like Acts 20.28 and Ephesians 5.25, we look at them through American culture, American individualistic eyes. Which means that we have a tendency to look at everything in regards to how it affects who. How it affects me. It's all about me. And so we read passages like this and we think, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me, which he does love you and he did die for you. The scripture teaches that. But the scripture teaches even more often the fact that he died for the church. He died for us collectively as a group. And a lot of us are big on Jesus dying for me, but we really miss the significance of the fact that he died so that we can be a group, a collective body, a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. This might be a good time here to take a moment and look at all of the different metaphors that the Holy Spirit uses uh, in the New Testament for the church. So let's just look at these. I've got these listed here. We'll go through them quickly. First of all, we are called God's household. 
We are called God's family. We are called Christ's flock. We are called God's building. We are called Christ's bride. And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, this is probably Paul's favorite, we have been called his body. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Look at all the different references there, and there are actually more, and all of the different metaphors. Why do you think that the Holy Spirit would go to great pains through various different authors, John, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, and Peter, to use, almost all of the different writers of the New Testament, to use different type of metaphors over and over again about the nature of the church? Why do you think? I have to believe he did so because he believes that the church is really, really important and wanted to get across to us in any way that he could the significance and the importance of the church and how we are supposed to be involved and interact with other members in Christ's body. This is not by accident, okay? This is on purpose. It's on purpose. Because you see on my own, I don't make up God's household, his family, his flock, his building, his bride, or his body. I'm a part of it, but I'm not the whole, not by a long shot. And this fact means that whether I like it or not, for better or for worse, I am intimately connected to everyone else who is a part of the church as well. I want you to look around today. Okay, I want you to look around here today. I really meant that, okay? I want you to look around today and you see these people who are gathered with you to your right or your left, in front of you, uh, behind you. These people are not strangers, okay? They're not strangers. Now, they might be strange, okay? I know most of you and there is some of that going on, okay? But they are not strangers, They are not strangers. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You got to get this. We're going to spend eternity together. Okay? You realize that? Eternity, which is a really long time. It's a really long time. Now, listen, you are, uh, your spouse might be with you today. You need to realize that your marriage is not eternal. You will not be married in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. The reality is, however, you will be brothers and sisters and we will worship the Lord together forever. And we fail to understand that there should be no strangers uh, in church. No people who we look on like, I don't really want to be involved. I don't really know. I don't really talk to them. That we are in this for better or for worse. We're in this together for the long haul. And here's what is happening in the church as a whole. And even to some degree here at Bethel. Is that there are quite a few people who really love Jesus. Or who say that they really love Jesus. And they really want to to have a relationship with Jesus. But they want absolutely nothing to do with the church at all. There are some people who are really committed. Or they say that they're really committed to Jesus. And all I need is Jesus and me. But they don't care for the church. And they could just completely do without the church. In fact, there's a guy named George Barna. You maybe have heard of of him. He's a big church research guy who uh, wrote a book several years ago called Revolution. And this whole revolution is about how we don't really need the church anymore. That the church is passe. It's time is done. It's not being effective. And you just need to leave your churches. And you can go have church on the golf course or church at Starbucks. You know, all you need is two guys. And you can just sit around and you can talk about uh, scripture, what's going on in your life. And that suffices for church. Now, that's a problem. I have a problem with that. And the problem that I have with that comes from actually Ephesians 5. Look at 22 through 24. Paul says this. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Paul presses this body analogy even further, and he says, you're the body, but guess who's the head of the body? Who's the head of the body? Jesus is. Christ is. The body is part of the head. And what some people are trying to do today, they're trying to say, you know, we really like the head, but we would rather, rather not interact or do, have anything to do with the body. Now that doesn't work very well, does it? Think about this, okay? Think about if you were to go home today, guys, and you were to say to your wife, you know what, honey, I really love your head. It's a beautiful head. I love your hair. I love your lips. I love to kiss you. I love to talk to you. I love to look at you. But you know what? Your body's pretty disgusting, okay? <laughs> and, and I would be much happier... I would be much happier if I could just have your head and we got rid of your body altogether. So let's just cut off the body, get rid of it, and I'm just going to love and interact and have a relationship with your head. Now, we laugh at that, and it sounds really strange, but that's what is happening when we say we really love Jesus, we really love the head, but we don't want anything to do with the body. When you get Jesus, you get the body too. You do. When Jesus, when Christ, God, the Holy Spirit calls you into a relationship with himself, he at the same time calls you into a relationship with other believers. There's not one or the other. So you can't say, we're just going to have, you know, church on the golf course, me and my buddy, okay? And halfway through, you know, if we hit one over into the woods and we have a few extra seconds, we're trying to find it, and we talk about Jesus, that's church. It's baloney, all right? Church is when we get together and we do the things that a church body does, like baptism and communion and worship and listening to preaching and serving and fellowshipping with one another. That's what it is. That's what Christianity is. That's what the church is. That's what we are called to. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes here and do a short analysis of how this kind of plays out here at Bethel. I think from time to time, we need to look at our church and we need to say, okay, how are we doing? How are we doing? So I want to do a little analysis with you this morning about how we are doing in regards to being involved in loving and interacting as a body of believers. And it seems to me that in general, people at Bethel fall into three different categories. These are broad categories, and I know that there are exceptions to this and situations and circumstances that make this differ. So don't take this just exactly as I say it. Just kind of consider where you fall or most likely fall here. First of all, we have the connected. We have the connected. These are people who love the church and they give themselves to it. They're faithful in attendance. They regularly fellowship with one another. And they use their spiritual gifts to serve and to help to build God's kingdom. You can see on the walls here this month during July, we have what are called our three E's here. Exalt, experience, engage. If you're not familiar with what these are, let me run down them with you quickly. First of all, uh, exalt. Exalt means regularly worshiping Christ. Regularly joining together as a body. We worship corporately. We um, take an offering. We give. We hear the word preach. Regularly doing that. The second E is experience. This is regularly uh, fellowshipping, interacting uh, over the word and in ministry with other believers. Okay, we call this horizontal Christianity, side-by-side Christianity. The third E is engage. And engage basically means using the gifts that God has given us to help to serve To serve, to engage in uh, interacting other believers and to serving in the body and to serving in our community. 
We believe here at Bethel that this is basic New Testament Christianity. These are the three things that we call each one of you to. We believe that the New Testament, if you read through it, would show that you need to have all of these things as a regular part of your life. Okay? And I'm just saying here today that we have many people, and we're very thankful for this, who engage in this on a regular basis. And this defines your church life. And to you, we say, well done, great job, keep it up. The Lord is blessing the church tremendously through your work. And if that is you, you need to feel good today because your church leadership says you're doing a fantastic job. And we love being able to serve alongside of you in that. In fact, by the way, just to tell you, I talked about my 10th anniversary. One of the reasons that people were able to stay at a church for a long time is because we have lots of people here who this is your life and you make ministry, I won't say easy, but you make it joyful. You make it joyful. Now, that's one group. The second group will be what I would call the unconnected. The unconnected. And the unconnected basically are those who may or may not be sporadic in attendance, but either way, simple attendance is what defines their church life. Okay? They don't, they don't participate in fellowship. They aren't normally using their gifts to help build Christ's church. And you may not realize that, but here at uh, Bethel, there are hundreds of people who fall into this category. There are hundreds of people who will come here this weekend, who will hear of the message, who will be a part of the worship, but they will leave, they will not serve, they will not give, they will not fellowship. And All that defines their church life is that they come to a service and then they slip out. And I just want to say to you lovingly, I'm saying this lovingly, this is not what God has for you and this is not what God wants from you. The scriptures are very clear. What does he want for you? Here's what Christ wants for you. He wants so much more from you. He wants you to have the joy of regularly worshiping him with other believers. He wants you to have the relationships and the accountability you need to help you grow in your walk with him. And he wants you to experience the satisfaction and the excitement and the joy joy that you will find in the only way that you can by building his kingdom through using your gifts, being a part of something that is so much bigger than you, Christ's church and his mission. And not only does he want so much more for you, but he also wants so much more from you. Listen guys, Christ died. He died. The God of the universe died so that you can be a part of his body. He died so that you can come faithfully and hear the word preached and be encouraged and challenged and motivated and equipped by it. He died so that you can use the gifts that he has given you, whether financial or physical, to help to serve and to be used in the body. He died so that you can fellowship and minister to other believers and so you can be ministered to. He died so that you can meet the needs of the poor, both the physically and the spiritually poor. And most of all, he died so life will not be about you, but will be about him and his church. And we just want to encourage you and call you to get connected here at the church. By the way, this is, we, we say this as much for you as we do for the church. The church will go on without you being connected. Okay, but you won't have the joy and the satisfaction that you can have if you will come and join us in what the Lord is doing here. 
One of the most well-known preachers of all time was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He pastored a large church in London in the last half of the 19th century. And he's known, by the way, as the Prince of Preachers. And apparently, uh, even with him, his church struggled with this issue. And I've always found, by the way, that when you want to say something difficult, it's, uh, it's better just to ha- find someone else who's already said it and just allow them to say it. Okay? Uh, and this is what Spurgeon said to the unconnected in his church. He said, I know that there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but you know what? I don't intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is no use for that brick to tell you that it's just a good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good for nothing brick. So you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Now, it's pretty clear that uh, Spurgeon just kind of spoke what was on his mind. But he did so because he loved the church and he gave his life to it. Essentially, one church his entire life. And I just want to encourage you that Christ died so that you could be a part of his body. So can I just plead with you to be connected, to commit yourself to the church and enjoy the blessings of what God has for you and what he wants to do through you. All right. The third category is what I will call the hurting. And I think that there are a lot of people here today that probably need to hear this part. And I realize that the hurting will include both the connected and the connected. That there are those of you who are connected to the church or unconnected to the church who come to Bethel as wounded soldiers. There are many of you, if not almost every one of you, who in some way have been hurt by the church. You may come from a church where legalism or liberalism reared their ugly heads and they make it very difficult for you to trust the church. You might come from a faith background where you were used and abused and you just really struggle to get involved and to open yourself up again. You may even have been hurt by or while at Bethel and frankly you may have even been hurt by me. We're not a perfect church, okay? We're not a perfect church. I'm not a perfect pastor and it is very possible that that has happened. And for all of these things... I want to say to you that uh, I'm sorry. And your leaders want to know you to know that we're sorry. We are sorry that you have been hurt by whoever has hurt you. We sympathize with you. And to be honest with you, in many cases, we empathize with you. That many of our leaders, if they were up here today, they would be able to tell you stories of how they have been hurt by the church as well. And regardless of why you are hurting, we just want to say to you that we want to be a place of healing for you. Healing and safety. We really do believe, by the way, that one of the functions of the church is to be a hospital for the spiritually wounded and the spiritually hurting. And so if that is you today, we encourage you, we just open up our arms to you and we say, come and talk to us. Let us love on you. Let us counsel with you. Let us talk to you, talk to you about these things and help you to move forward in hopefully healing the hurt. At the same time, we want to encourage you that you can only view the church as a hospital or only should view the church as a hospital for so long. And we can honestly tell you that until you commit yourself to us and therefore us to you, you will only be able to heal so much. 
You never enter into a commitment with the church and a relationship with the church. We really have a hard time shepherding you and helping that hurt to heal. You know what happens, by the way? You've experienced this, right? When someone or some institution hurts you, what do you tend to do? You tend to just kind of close off, right? And you don't want to let anybody back in. You say, they're never going to do that to me again. I'm never going to be hurt again. But what happens at the same time? Do you actually heal? No, it almost always gets worse. It almost always gets worse. And we want, what we want to encourage you to do and lovingly is say, and we'll, there, we'll give you time here, but let's gently open back up and give us an opportunity here at Bethel to minister to you, get involved, get connected. And by the way, the best way to heal is to give yourself to the life-giving mission of the church. Because as you give yourself to it and you pour yourself into it, the Holy Spirit has a way of coming in and healing those hurts. And we just want to encourage you to allow that to be your experience here at Bethel. Here's a final word on this point. I really believe the big part of the answer to our hurts and our issues with the church is that most of the time we fail to see its beauty. We fail to see its beauty. It's beauty now and it's beauty in the future. And all that you need to do, we won't do it, but you can look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and you can see the beautiful language that Paul uses to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Listen, folks, the church is beautiful. You know why it's beautiful? Because Paul says that Christ died to make it beautiful. Now, in a real sense, it's not all the way there yet. Okay, it's kind of one of those already but not yet things. The church is beautiful because Christ decided to make it beautiful, but it's still a work in progress. Okay, it's, it's something that we're going to be and something that we are working on. But the reality is here is that there are a lot of beautiful things. Don't you think that that uh, baptism video was beautiful? Wasn't it beautiful to see uh, all of those people, 70 some people expressing their faith uh, in Jesus Christ? It's going to be beautiful this week as we have complete chaos with 500 children running through the halls of this church. But we'll see little children place their faith in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful as we saw last week uh, through our Celebrate Recovery ministry of, of families and couples and people's lives being put back together. There's lots of beauty. But you know what you need to do in order to be able to see it? You have to get close. It's really easy to stand back and to be able to point a critical finger and say, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. What you need to do is you need to get close. And as you get close and you get connected, you begin to see the beauty come through. And as you see the beauty come through, along with it come the blessings. And so we just want to encourage you to see the beauty of the church. Now, It's not quite there yet, but there will be a day when it is. And I want to show you this. This is from Revelation 19. John's telling us about the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, get this, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, there is coming a day... When the only thing left is going to be Christ and the church. You realize that? 
Okay? This building is gone. Northwest Indiana is gone. This world is gone. Our sin is gone. Our pain is gone. Our hurt is gone. All of that is gone. And the only thing exists are Christ and his bride. And on that day, we will be a perfect, beautiful, wonderful, holy church. And we will be there together at the throne, worshiping the Lamb. And are you thankful this morning that you have been invited to that banquet? Now, here's what you need to get for today, however. We need to live today in light of that day. We need to live today preparing ourselves, getting ready. The bride has made herself ready. Getting ready for that day. And how do we do that? We do that by being connected to the church, using our gifts, fellowshipping, and committing ourselves to what we've been called to commit ourselves to. So, why should we love the church? We should love the church because Christ loves the church. Here's the second reason. Second reason I love the church is that the church is what God is doing. The church is what God is doing. And you can turn to Matthew 16 if you're not there already. Um, If you didn't do what I asked you to do at the beginning, put your finger in there, okay? You can turn there. But I'm wondering if you're like me this morning. You ever um, read the newspaper, watch the news, look online at all the stuff that's going on in our world, and you say, what in the world is God doing? You ever do that? You look out even at uh, Northwest Indiana uh, or just all the kind of different stuff that's going on, even maybe your neighborhood, school, whatever, your family, and you say, what in the world is God doing? Why hasn't Jesus come back? What is going on here? Well, I'm glad to tell you this morning that Matthew 16 actually tells us what God is doing. And that's what I want to share with you here right now. Matthew 16, look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, a couple things about this passage. First of all, it is uh, one of the most controversial and powerful uh, passages in the entire scripture. And for this morning, although I would love to do this, I'm going to kind of avoid the controversial subjects like who actually is the rock that Jesus is talking about in verse 18, and what exactly are those keys in verse 19. I think there are good answers to those. But what I want to focus on this morning is Jesus' promise in verse 18 where he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I think if you can grab onto the meaning and understanding of what Jesus is saying here, you will have the key to what the New Testament teaches us about the mission and the purpose of the church. So notice three things. First of all, Jesus says, I will build. I will build. This is a future tense here in the passage because he still had to die. 
He still had to be resurrected, and he still had to authorize the apostles to found the church once the Holy Spirit came. But today we would look at this and we would say, he is building his church. Here's the point. It's a given, it's a fact, and nothing can stop Jesus from building his church. Do you believe that? Okay, that's what it says. Secondly, he says, I will build my church. This means that the church is Christ's church. It's not my church, it's not your your church. It's not the elders church. It's Christ's church. The next time somebody asks you, you know, is that your church? You should say, no, it's not my church. It's Christ's church. And I get to be a part of it. He's the one that died, not me so that it could be his. We got to get over this fact that this is our church. It's not our church. It's Christ's church. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that gives the marching orders. He's the one that we follow. Last and most important, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us, against it. Now, I think that many of us, and I would include myself in this, have totally missed what Jesus is saying here. Totally missed it. This passage, this phrase actually is often taken to mean that we are being attacked by hell and Satan and that Christ will assure that the church will be able to ward off the attack. That's how we have kind of taken this. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means that, you know, Jesus is going to protect us. And so churches have taken this verse to mean that we're kind of supposed to be defensive. It has led us to kind of circle the wagons, kind of huddle up. To try and do everything we can to do to protect ourselves from the world and the devil. Which means that we create these Christian bubbles that we live in. Okay? And we, we make sure that we don't allow anybody in that might be from the world. Okay? And we just kind of hunker down. And we're just going to hold out. And we're going to wait until Jesus comes back to take us to be his. But you know what? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is not telling us to be on the defensive. He is actually telling us to be on the offensive, that we are actually the ones that are supposed to be on the attack and that we're not the ones that need to be afraid of hell, but hell needs to be afraid of us. And the key to understanding this is in two words, in Hades or hell and gates. That term hell there um, in the ESV could also be translated Hades. Basically what it means is it's the place of the dead. The place where dead people are. It's not the lake of fire hell that the devil is going to be thrown into. It's just simply the place of the dead. The second thing is gates. I just want you to think about this with me for a second. And I really don't know that I've gotten this through to any of the other two uh, services. So maybe you guys will grab onto it with me. Okay. But have you ever, have you ever in reading a book or watching a movie, just kind of seen or heard the king say to his generals and say to his army, you know, we're going to go out and attack the enemy. And in order to attack the enemy, I want you to take the gates of the city and I want you to charge the enemy with the gates of the city. You ever heard that? Ever seen that? Ever seen it where the gates are used as an offensive weapon? Take them off the hinges and just charge. We're going to use those as an offensive weapon. Have anybody, anybody ever seen that? No. Why? Because gates are not used as an offensive weapon. They're used as a part of our defense, right? They're used to keep people out, keep the enemy out. Let me ask you the question here. Who has the gates? Who has the gates? Is it the church has the gates or who has the gates? Hell has the gates, right? Which means who's on the defensive here, Jesus is saying. The hell does, right? And who then is supposed to be on the offense? It is the church. It is the church. 
He's saying the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. They cannot stop us from accomplishing the mission of building my church. You've heard it said that a best uh, defense is a good offense, right? You've heard that, right? Which explains some of the Bears problems, right, over the years, okay? But it also explains some of the church's problems in moving forward and advancing and accomplishing our mission is that we've been in defensive mode and holding back when in reality Jesus is saying to us, you need to go on the attack. You need to move outside of your bubbles. Quit forming these church softball and church basketball and all these other things to protect yourselves from the world and get out. Get out there and take the gospel on attack. Now let's talk a little bit more about the dead here. Let's talk a little bit more about our mission. What is the mission of the church? What is God calling us to do? Well, I really believe in the context of the gospel of Matthew. If we were to turn to Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, Jesus says, you are to make disciples. And then when we see here the gates of the dead, I think that our mission as a church is to make disciples out of dead people. To make disciples out of dead people. Let me explain what I mean by that. The New Testament is clear that before someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. That unbelievers are walking around as zombies, as dead people. But when the Spirit comes in, He gives us new life, new birth. He rebirths us into God's kingdom. That once, at once we were dead. When we were dead, we were in Satan's kingdom. We were owned by him. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, he transfers us from Satan's kingdom, from the place of the dead, into God's kingdom. And what he's telling the church to do is he's telling us to take the gospel. And as we take the gospel of God's grace... The Holy Spirit uses that to take people from being dead to being alive and to building his church. I actually believe, by the way, in verse 19, those keys are very simply the gospel. Because the gospel is the key to opening up dead people's hearts and making them alive. And so what are we called to do here as a church? We are called to take the gospel and to make disciples out of dead people. And we are to charge and storm the gates of hell as God's army. And we, as we do so, we can be guaranteed that nothing can stop that from happening. We can't be defeated. You know, I'm thoroughly convinced that one of the reasons that people aren't too excited about the church is that they're not too excited about what we really are trying to do here. Maybe they don't understand. Maybe we haven't explained it clearly. But, you know, I think a lot of people say, you know, the church is a nice place. It's a nice, comfortable place. I need to get my kids there and all that. And I need to go once in a while. Maybe even need to go every week. But there really isn't any earth, anything earth-shattering about what we're trying to do here. When in reality, nothing could be further than the truth. Because what we're trying to do here is not only earth-shattering, it's hell-shattering. It's hell-shattering. That we literally are attempting to break down the gates of hell and rescue people so they enter into God's kingdom by making disciples. And I can just take a moment here. I want to talk to the men for a second. And uh, I know that I did this the last time I preached as well. But the Lord really... Has laid a, on my heart a burden for the men of our church. I, I'm afraid that we have not done a very good job of giving the men uh, at Bethel uh, something to really give their life to. You know, any man who is worth his salt wants something that they can just kind of completely throw their life into, something that is worthwhile. And guys, if that is you, I just want to say to you that Jesus is laying it out for you here. Do you want to give yourself to something that cannot fail? 
that will definitely concede, succeed, that you can bank on, and that if you give yourself to, you will be richly re- rewarded. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus says to you this morning, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot stop it from happening. And the great thing is, is that he invites us into that. You know, there's nothing that we as men like more than our hobbies and something that we can bank on, something that is a sure thing that we know that we will be successful at. Well, this is it. This is the only thing, by the way, that you can be guaranteed will be completely successful. And that is, as you come and be a part of building Christ's kingdom in his church, he will make it successful. Notice what Paul David Tripp says here. Makes a great point. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And best of all, he wants you to be a part of it. And so I ask you today, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Will you join him in his mission? Let me leave you this morning with a couple of words now regarding church membership. This is my task, and so um, I think it's an important application to what we've just talked about. And I just want to say two things, okay? Here are two things that we need at Bethel. First of all, we need our members to function as members. We need our members to function as members. Many of you are, said that earlier, and to you, by the way, If you're functioning as a member, I will say the same thing to you that Paul said to the church at Corinth. The last verse of 1 Corinthians, which we will eventually get to, okay? We will eventually get to. Paul says this. He says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And I love this part. Because you know that your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. You know why it's not in vain? Because Christ is building his church and nothing can stop it. However... We have members who are not functioning as members. You're not giving, you're not serving, and you're not fellowshipping. And I just want to encourage you that that's not membership. It's consumerism. It's something that you can do at White Hawk Country Club. What you're called to do here is exalt, experience, and engage. And we and you need to begin to do that. Secondly, we need our non-members to become and function as members. Here's somewhat of an ironic thing. We have a lot of non-members who are already functioning as members, doing all the things that members are called to do. And we just want to encourage you, if this is you, to uh, join the church, okay? To join the church, to formally commit yourself into a relationship with the church so that you uh, can function as God would have you to function fully. And by the way, so that the elders and pastors of the church can faithfully shepherd you. One of the things that we're called to do as leaders of the church, 1 Peter 5, is to shepherd the flock. Well, it's really hard to shepherd the flock when you don't know who the flock is. Do you realize that? It's hard to do. And so we want to encourage you to join the church and allow us to shepherd you fully and allow you to function here fully. Now, let me make a note to you. 
There are a lot of you here in regards to church membership who have questions. It might be a question about baptism or a struggle with baptism. It might be about church discipline. It might be about some other doctrinal issue. It might be a, a former church or something that you're struggling with. And I just want to, I really literally want to beg you this morning to give us the opportunity to talk to you and to, to shepherd you and to counsel you with that. Okay, a lot of times we hear that people have struggles or issues, uh, but they don't talk to us or allow us to work through these. We have a great staff and we have great elders. Okay, we have six lay elders here. I can speak for them. They, they are great men, godly men who will love you and work with you uh, through these issues. Give us the opportunity to do that. Give us the time to be able to do that. Last thing is this, is that, uh, actually it's not the last thing, but a, a note on, in regards to membership. Okay? Uh, if you want to join, here's what you need to do. We have a class called the Connection Point class. It begins August the 22nd. It's four classes, okay? Four straight weeks. Uh, this is taught by the pastors. We come in, we'll teach you about what it means to be a member of the church. We'll allow you to ask questions. You'll meet a bunch of our staff, elders, and deacons. We'll talk to you about ministries. We'll help you to get connected. It also fulfills your membership requirement. If you want to sign up for this, there's a table in the commons. You can go by and sign up for that, or you can just come on August 22nd. That's the first step, okay? Last thing is this. I know that some of the things that we have shared, that I've shared this morning, have been maybe a little hard to take. I want you to know that all of it has been said for, out of love. Out of love for our Savior and out of love for you. We want you to have joy. We want you to have the satisfaction of being involved and a part of what God is doing here. And so if it's taken hard, please don't take it that way. Take it out of love and concern for you and the flock of God that is here at Bethel Church. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you this morning. And um, what can we say, Lord, about what you have done for us? We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you were obedient, as Philippians tells us, obedient to the point of death, that you didn't uh, stay in your comfort, you didn't stay in your position of authority, but you stooped down to become a man, to walk on this earth. You took abuse, you suffered pain, you suffered the ultimate pain of death and separation from your father. And you did it because you love the church. Lord, we pray that you will pour into our hearts even just a little bit of the love for the church that you have. That we will see the church not through our own eyes and our experience, but we'll see it through your eyes. That you will see the church as you see it, not as she is or has been, but as she is going to be. We thank you that you have invited us into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we just want to cry out even this morning that you will have that day come quickly. We long to be relieved of uh, these bodies and this earth and to be with the Savior that we love. Help us to realize that we will do that together. And we pray that we will live today in light of the fact that we will live together for eternity. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing uh, here at Bethel. I thank you for uh, the wonderful people who make up our body here. We thank you for the joy that you produce in all of us through faithful service and fellowship and love and a commitment to the word. We thank you for a pastor who preaches the word to us faithfully every week. We thank you for our elders who faithfully lead us, our staff, all of our volunteers who work. Lord, we just pray for those who are not connected. 
We pray that you will stir within their hearts a desire to be a part of the body, that they will understand that the church is what you are doing. Lord, we pray that as a church that we will be on mission, that we will be on task, that we'll quit worrying um, about the world infiltrating us, and we will be concerned about infiltrating the world. Help us to understand that the power of the gospel can change lives, can change communities. And we pray that we will see that happening here in Crown Point and in Northwest Indiana. Will we come now to your table as we remember your death? We thank you uh, once again for your body that was broken, for your blood that was shed. Lord, we pray as we come that we won't come unworthily, but that we will come with consciences and hearts that are cleansed. We thank you that you are faithful to do that. And we pray that we will also come with joy and reverence and gratitude for what you have done for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.